Hey guys, this is the Hunt Gather Talk Podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. Today we are going to be talking about ruffed grouse. Yes, the king, the king of all upland game birds in many, many people's eyes. It is a fantastically fascinating bird because it has so much diversity within its range. It is the grouse with the largest range, living from California, where I live, all the way up to the Maritimes in northern Canada and everywhere in between, wherever there are aspens and cool, deciduous forests. So we have today two experts on these birds. One is the great Rocky Gutierrez. I had him on on the mountain quail episode, and he is considered one of the foremost experts on upland game birds in the United States. He is joining us with Heather Shaw. Heather Shaw is not actually my sister or any relation, but she is a also a wildlife biologist specializing in grouse. She lives in Michigan, so we're going to get a great perspective of this bird from both the Great Lakes and from the West. Hope you enjoyed and let her rip. Welcome, guys, to the show. Uh, this is a a rare opportunity to have two count them two wildlife biologists on. Normally, it's like me, the cook. Obviously, some guy who you know is usually pretty good at hunting whatever it is that we're talking about, and then I, the stray biologist. But this is this is going to be a good opportunity to kind of get in the weeds a little bit about what is arguably the king of all upland game birds. I I, I can take arguments that it can be another bird, but for most people, especially if they live east of the Great Plains, the ruffed grouse is is sort of a king. And it is uh, developed along with the woodcock an entire weird northeastern culture with like leather patches on their elbows and strange double guns and weird behavior that those of us as Westerners, because Rocky and I are Westerners, we know a very different kind of ruffed grouse and they act very differently. And I definitely want to get into that as we talk uh, over the next hour, hour and a half or so. So. For people who may not have heard the mountain quail episode, Rocky Gutierrez, why don't you introduce yourself for a little bit? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Hank. Um, as uh, you mentioned that we were uh, speaking together about mountain quail a few weeks ago, um, and uh, I am the um, Gordon Gullion Emeritus in wildlife uh, management from the University of Minnesota. Emeritus simply means that I'm supposed to be retired, but I'm actually not because I'm still working uh, every day on my research on spotted owls and grouse and other species. So that's that's about all I I really think I need to add unless you want me to say more. Oh, I'll, I'll fill in the gaps. Basically, everybody out there, you're listening to the Yoda of Upland Game Bird Biology. He is uh, he has published probably what is it, 175 peer-reviewed papers now, something like that. Right? <laughs> Since you know, for uh, almost a 50-year span, 73 was your first one, I think. That's uh, actually 1971 is my first pu- publication. There you go. So it's almost 50 years of publication and. There are very few upland game bird biologists with the chops of Rocky Gutierrez, and we are uh, we are we're going to talk about the fact that all three of us on this call are Big Ten people, um, and we're going to no doubt throw stones at each other in a minute. But Heather Shaw, no relation, I don't think, uh, unless 
there's a mailman or a cousin that we don't know about. But you are also a uh, a game bird biologist. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hank. And maybe we are uh, related from a distant cousin, but until I figure that out, we'll go from there. Um, yeah, so I am a wildlife biologist, um, and I've been practicing wildlife biology and ecology for about 14 years now. So I definitely don't have the chaps that Rocky does whatsoever. I still consider myself quite quite new to the field, um, even after a decade of work. And my work is definitely surrounded um, throughout my entire career around avian ecology and management, specifically game bird ecology and management. So I have worked for uh, state, federal, nonprofit agencies that include Wyoming Game and Fish Department, North Dakota Game and Fish Department, Ducks Unlimited, and uh, the Rough Grouse Society as well as their regional wildlife biologist. So right now I'm really focusing my efforts on uh, more R3 type work and events and really working to engage um, additional new hunters, specifically women, into the upland hunting community and trying to create that sense of community and create that that tribe, if you will, for folks and try to break down some barriers that others may have felt um, have been conflicting for them trying to enter into uh, their new hunting ventures um, and hopefully create traditions and relationships that last a, last a lifetime for them as well. There's a b- big recruitment, what is it, recruitment, retention, and what's the other one? Retention. Re-what? Reactivation. Reactivation. Okay, that's the third. I always remember recruitment and retention, but the reactivation is is the hard one to remember. So let's talk about grouse. So let's just start with a real first basic question. How is it that the ruffed grouse of all the different species got to be known by many as the king of all upland game birds? I'll let you go first, Heather. (laughs) For you, Rocky. That's a, everyone's going to have their own interpretation of how the king came to be, I think, in upland hunting culture and lore and, and folklore and hunting behind different breeds of dogs as well. There's, there's, that's a whole other podcast, I think, um, when you really want to dive into the culture and the history of that. In my own opinion, I find it because of the challenges that we see pursuing this bird. You know, we, we can pursue various game species, especially upland game throughout the country, throughout the world, but I really don't see additional challenges rising to the caliber that rough grouse really present to the hunter. It's challenging for our dogs, even the finest of bird dogs too, and I'm hunting over a lot of young dogs right now, and and we we find this every day, but uh, they present their own challenges to us in our pursuits, and we are always a student to the bird. So this bird is always humbling, even the best of hunters and the best of dogs, and even wildlife biologists and ecologists, and, and Rocky, I'm sure you as well as myself and others find this every day. We can think that we know as much as we do about the most studied game bird in North America. Over 100 years of, of proven, amazing groundwork and research has been laid before us. But until you get out in those covers and you really pursue this bird, you don't truly, you don't know it all. You don't, you, we're always humbled and we're, we're just always a student. So I think that really gives it that that caliber of being the king over other game species, especially upland game species that we pursue. I I agree 100%. And uh, the the reason that why I asked you to go first is because I always enjoy hearing the perspective of other people, uh, because it, it's it's that's what uh, broadens our our own 
way of thinking about things. And as you were speaking, I, I thought back, you know, everything she's saying is, is true. Yet I wonder, why, is, why did that bird ever become so wily? And, and I, I thought, as, as you were speaking, I says, I, I wonder if it has to do with the fact that, game, that the rough grouse and other game species in, in the eastern United States uh, were, so, were hunted so hard uh, through the development of the nation that they became quite rare. And the survivors, we, we essentially imposed Darwinian selection on them. And all the dumb ones got killed, and the the, the smart ones just survive. And we we are just the, in a sense the beneficiaries of that uh, huge selection pressure. So now these these birds they know every single trick, and we and they have better hearing than we do, better eyesight, uh, and so forth. So they um, are able to use all of those facilities to uh, evade us, and I think that's why they. They have risen uh, to the level of the king of game birds. I'm glad you brought that up because as, as when Heather was talking, I'm thinking, man, you've never hunted out west where you can kill them with a Nalgene. I mean, like they're the roughed grouse in the Uinta Mountains in Utah and Idaho in Northern California. I, I mean, they're just dumb as a bag of hammers. I mean – like they'll sit there and like they're almost as bad as fool hens. And and so it's it's very interesting to hear the East versus West perspective. Now, now my take on why it became the king is because right at the get go, you have people who are familiar with what was in Great Britain or in France or in Germany. So you're dealing with a glorious 12th, you know, the 12th of August, the opening of grouse season in Scotland which goes back before our country was founded. And so you have this grouse hunting tradition of, although that's probably that, that particular grouse is probably closer to a ptarmigan because uh, it's a dark meat bird, but they've got partridges and all these other things in Europe. And so there's this tradition of, of bird hunting that really, I mean, and if you want to go way back, he predates, you know, recorded history because they were chucking nets on chuckers back in the Neolithic. But in terms of grouse, which are more singular, you kind of have to wait for the shotgun. And the shotgun doesn't really become much of anything until, I would say, 1700s earliest, the earliest. And, and you're really talking 1800s. So both the countries has been founded and were independent at this point. But you have this old tradition of, of hunting grouse as a big deal. And it is other than the wild turkey the biggest game bird other than waterfowl in the game, in the in the, the wild turkey it is the biggest game bird in the northeast which is the first part of the country settled at least unless you're of the onyate expedition in, in new mexico um so you've got from cultural standpoint you've got like oh yeah here's the biggest wildest chicken that lives in the woods and People like hunting chickens, man. I mean, I don't care where you are in the world. If there's a chicken thing, we're going to go after it. That's my take. Hard to argue with that. <laughs> Is this the reason why it's the most studied game bird in North America? I, I think I think that's definitely one of the reasons. Uh, because 
the, the, the grouse has this uh, cyclic behavior over much of its range. And they go to through, they're abundant at one point in time, and then they gradually decline, and then they rise again. And usually that's a 10-year cycle, or at least it has been historically in many parts of the range. That, those cycles don't occur out in the west, but in the northeast and throughout boreal Canada, Alaska, they, they do show this 10-year cycle. And I think that people misinterpreted, may have misinterpreted these declines as something more serious than they were. And because of the because of that, they were worried that, that this favorite game bird of theirs was going to disappear. They began to try to think of ways to manage them. And that's when they asked people like um, Gardner Bump from uh, Cornell University to begin studies in New York to learn about the, the ecology of rough grouse such that they could better manage them. And so I think, I think that's the, the, the sort of the connection there with, with why they became so studied. They're also, of all our grouse, correct me if I'm wrong, they're the most widespread of all the grouse in North America, right? I think so, yes. Um, I was just trying to think of the blue grouse had, has as wide a distribution, but it doesn't. The blue grouse occurs from southern New Mexico uh, to Alaska, and the rough grouse occurs from Alaska all the way to Georgia and Alabama, um, northern Alabama. So, And they also occur as far as, far south as northwestern uh, California. So it's and down into well now into northern Colorado, so they have pretty huge distribution, and it's it is coincident almost with the distribution of aspen. Now the, that's not true in the southern southeastern United States or in the Pacific Northwest, but by and large the rest of the distribution is coincident with aspen. Really, in the northeast too? Yes. So I'd like to touch on that as well. And Rocky, you bring up a lot of great points, but range and distribution is something that current land managers and wildlife biologists throughout the rough grouse range have been struggling with because it did coincidentally, of course, occur with the occurrence of aspen throughout those ranges. But now that is very much restricted. Um, and it, it's very much moving from the southern U.S. where rough grouse used to occur. And we used to also have um, plentiful aspen on the landscape to a much more constricted area. And that's due to a lot of different factors, um, a lot of different ingredients in a very complex soup, if you will. But I think, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that restriction due to mainly um, political views on forest management, a lack of appropriate forest management and age class diversity in some states, um, social pressure against some forms of, of active science-based forest management as well. And when that occurs, we're not only losing aspen or other components on the landscape, but we're losing those forest age classes as well that really support young forest-dependent wildlife. And as such, a lot of the states I worked within um, and, and still continue to do work within are looking at future endangered listing of rough grouse in their state, Indiana being one. Um, and I was definitely on the forefront of 
those NRC meetings and presenting the data and the science to the NRC to make sure, along with our local chapters, too, that we were pushing for that status to then hopefully develop a recovery plan uh, moving forward in some of those states. So Indiana and Ohio, if you will, and our southern states are, are seeing that constriction, too, where seasons are closed, bag limits are reduced, uh, birds are, are not plentiful, and we go from a culture who of folks who were raised to pursue these birds and have an amazing sporting tradition that they want to hang on to and that keeps them fighting for this bird, but they don't have the opportunity to pursue it anymore, either legally or, or justifiably, if the numbers are, are so low in such states. So we're really in quite a conundrum right now where we're seeing extirpation in some of those areas when it comes to rough grouse and state-specific populations. Totally. I mean, my buddy Joe, I've had on this podcast in season one, he's a he's a trapper and a hunter in Ohio in Jogga County near near Cleveland. He's convinced he killed the last grouse in Ohio like 10 years ago. <laughs> it's horrible because hunters go afield and there a lot of people say that to me in Ohio, too, that they don't want to even pursue them, although their their season is still open and very shortened and just actually recently shortened as well in 2020. They don't want to go out and pursue that last bird. They're that concerned and that avid of a conservationist that they'd rather make sure that they're working towards active conservation rather but although hunting of course is not going to be additive to the decline in the population they're they still have that mentality too and i fully understand it hey everybody i'd like to take this time to thank filson for sponsoring the hunt gather talk podcast as you may know i wear their gear in the field all the time i love their vests i love their outerwear their tin cloth jacket is awesome Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Do roughies need different habitats, whether they're in, you know, Humboldt County, California, or, you know, Idaho, or the UP, or Maine? I mean, it's, or Ohio for that matter. So what most grouse hunters know is they need kind of like middling sort of forest. Like they don't like the old forest and they don't like the brand new forest. They like it a few years old from what I understand. But is that, is that universal across the range of habitats? And, and does, I mean, I've hunted grouse any number of places and there's not an aspen to be found because usually in the West, the blue grouse are in the aspens. Um, but so they, they have to need, they have to like other trees besides aspens. And so I guess the, the short version of this question is what sort of forest would be a good place to start looking for grouse to go hunting in? Well, again, it depends on where you are in the country. Uh, but you, they, they do, in fact, prefer habitats that are very dense. And these are usually young forests. Um, there are some situations in which in which they're found in, say, that in the Pacific Northwest or in, in uh, uh, California, where they're found in these um, broad sclerophyll forests with madrone and uh, live oak and and uh, deciduous oaks and understory of of shrubs, uh, which is and also riparian areas, 
which are oftentimes um, dominated by alders and willows and and the like. Uh, but but overall, they they like relatively thick forests uh, for uh, cover, uh, especially when they're for a breeding habitat. Because when they when they display when the males display to attract, uh, they're exceptionally vulnerable to predation because they're beating their wings to make this drumming sound, and when they're doing that. Uh, they can't really see anything that's coming up behind them. Uh, so, and oftentimes from the side either. So they, um, they prefer to be in a very dense thicket of, of, um, vegetation, uh, to drum. So what, when you're talking about hunting in, in the West, I'd say, uh, work the riparian areas along streams and rivers. Um, if you're in the, the, um, the Midwest, uh, I'd say hunt near clear cuts. And if, I'd, if you're in the uh, Appalachians, I'd say uh, logging, uh, logging areas, even if they're selectively long, if they have oaks, because it turns out that oaks are uh, a very important food resource for, for um, rough grouse in the uh, Appalachian regions. What about like the Maine, New Hampshire area? They they primarily Aspen in those oh, areas, okay. and same way with the Midwest, all through Canada and Alaska. Uh, in in the winter time, their diet consists of probably ninety to ninety five percent Aspen uh, male Aspen catkins. Hmm. No, so Rocky, I mean he obviously hit the nail on the head too, and it's it's interesting to see how it changes. So I could speak more specifically to Great Lakes habitat. Um, the way I typically try to describe it to folks is that they need a patchwork mosaic, not only as diversity, um, but for additional food resources and cover too. So food and cover on the landscape, drumming locations, drumming logs, if, if that's included in a contract for a timber sale, all these are big components. Again, just other ingredients in a very complex, diverse landscape that these birds utilize. Then we bring in the component of food resource availability and how their food and diet, uh, food that they seek out and their forageability and diet that they have changes throughout the seasons too. So, you know, they'll switch from a very leafy vegetation um, focus to then, you know, of course, like berries and crab apple or whatever, maybe thorn apple earlier on in the season to more hard mast acorns about this time of year in most states, at least in the, in the Great Lakes and I think East Coast as well. Where we're harvesting birds right now that, um, you know, we, oak is a huge component on the landscape, just as much as, as aspen and a conifer thermal component and other understory species like beak hazelnut and, and other soft mast too. But now they're, they're switching right now between hard mast and leafy vegetation. So we'll find crops full of both and they're kind of on that transfer. And then, you know, throughout the fall shuffle into the winter, then they really transfer to that really fat, rich, protein rich catkin mostly for the winter food sources. But in states that don't have that resource, that don't have aspen, um, that age class diversity of different species, whether it be hardwoods um, or softwood, is still really critical too. So there are states that don't have the aspen component um, as much as we might here in the UP of Michigan, but we're still finding birds persisting because there's young forest for drumming cover and brood rearing cover and that herbaceous vegetation that 
is critical for insect production for young chicks that need that rich protein source. Then they move on, you know, throughout their food sources throughout the life cycle to their winter, which um, is typically more mature species. So it really does vary. Just now learning about where to pursue birds potentially in what period of time from fall to late season. And maybe if your season runs into January, we end on the first here in Michigan. You really need to study the biology of the bird and study food resource availability and look at forest age classes too. And um, there's there's just so much information out there. It's, you know, that would, again, be just kind of going down the rabbit hole, but they really, uh, they utilize a lot of different resources on the landscape and you can't pinpoint just one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, in Bidette, upper Minnesota, Canada border, I've hunted grouse quite a bit there. And they, the snowberries are always a key. Like if you see the little white snowberries, that's prick your ears up. Um, and if you're hunting with the snow on the ground, it's like a December hunt, uh, the hazel catkins, alder and hazel catkins, they, you'll see them sticking down. And then because often there's a little bit of snow on the ground, you can see like chicken prints and be like, oh, they've been hitting these things because they're messy eaters. Um, so you can kind of see the debris around and then you can kind of prick your ears up as well. I wasn't. I did not know that they ate so many acorns. That's that's an interesting one. Yeah, that's that's particularly true in in uh, the southeast, and there, there really haven't been very many studies in in California of uh, rough grouse. But I would not be at all surprised uh, in uh, northwest California that they're not uh, also eating quite a bit of acorn because there, we have so many oaks here. Yeah, you've got the, what's the little, what's the, I guess it's like a coastal live oak that's out there that has the little acorns because there's so many different species in the, in, in California that it's just crazy. Like you have, if you, if you guys listening out there don't really know, we've got something on the order of 20. Well, there's really more cause oaks hybridize quite a bit, but, um, there's 20 some odd species of oak in California and their acorns can range from microscopic, you know, like a, there's a couple of species that have a uh, an acorn that's about the size of the digit on your pinky finger, all the way up to like a, a valley oak, which is like like the size of your ring finger. Um, so anything from very small to huge, and and you can see them all one on top of each other. And there's a particularly small one that lives in the grouse area. It's I think it's a, a coastal live oak. You might know the actual species, Rocky. I don't know. Uh, it might be uh, Quercus turbinella, which is just a scrub oak, um, and, or that I'm confused with the one in Arizona. So that's the emery oak. Yeah. Well, no, that's 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 the one that's in the uh, uh, Mexican Insinal habitat, the grassland habitats. But there there's a couple of species of of uh, shrub oaks, one in Arizona, one in California, that look almost identical. And one of them is Turbinella, and I cannot remember the, the scientific name of the other one. But they have these little tiny um, acorns, about like you say, about the size of the tip of your finger. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I see. I you know where I see those um, when I'm hiking and uh, and I'm way the hell up, like around nine, ten thousand feet in the Sierra Nevada in El Dorado County. It's like a it's like a shrub, but it's an oak. And uh, you you really only see those acorns like once every three or four years, and they're way up high. Yeah, and they, so here's, they're on the coast as well. Yeah. Here's a question for you: Can you, if you're if you're wandering through the woods, can you spot a drumming log? 
is there is there something that makes a drumming log look different from say any other log there there absolutely is so you really look for um grouse scat essentially and scat can like any wildlife species can tell you a lot about the individual itself and the you know the bird itself but also its habitat so it can tell you what they're eating based on color whether it's a yellowish orange color or whether it's purple later on in the season as well when it starts to really get that protein rich fat rich uh, catkin diet too so your drumming logs are typically going to be 8 to 10 inches in diameter probably something more mature about four feet off the ground. We call it diameter at breast height. So um, we, we typically try to encourage these included in, in most timber sale contracts too. But I find them quite often. Um, and, and you can definitely find a bird that's very fidelic or continues to utilize the same drumming log for years in a row, um, you know, if, if not its entire life cycle. So that drumming log will typically be, again, large in diameter, eight to 10 inches, uh, laying on the ground, maybe covered in moss, typically butting up to the stump that it, the actual tree fell from. And that offers additional cover for that male while they're drumming. And some will drum all season long. You'll have male drummers, fall drummers. Sometimes you might be fortunate enough to hear them, you know, throughout the winter, depending on where you're at. Don't hear them as much in the winter in Michigan. But uh, yeah, so you'll see something very well, well used due to the amount of grouse scat that's there. And then that can kind of tell you the time of year, depending on what they're feeding on, um, what they're, what those birds in that area or that cover might be utilizing. Hmm. Yeah. One other tidbit um, for identifying logs is that they, they, they spend so much time on it and they walk back and forth. There's often uh, a little uh, worn spot where they spend a lot of the time uh, doing their drumming and walking back and forth and strutting on, on the log. So you'll, you'll have bark and then you'll have this worn spot. And even if there isn't any, um, grouse droppings there because of rain or whatnot, you'll, you can be sure that that's been probably used by a grouse. Hmm. I definitely so- encourage folks that do find one or come across one in their spring mushroom hunting ventures or, or spring foraging ventures to put a trail camera out there. That's, it's really an interesting way to get some amazing footage of male drummers in the spring too. And they're very active as to just kind of sneak in and, and put some trail cameras out and try to learn a little bit more about those birds and the covers that they hunt. So grouse in general, to my knowledge, and you guys probably know more than I do, but random grouse in general, of course there's zillions of species. They tend to not like each other for much of the year. Like they're not quail, you know, they don't cubby up, you know, I don't, you don't see, oh, I flushed 27 rough grouse in one, in one thing. And, you know, might see two or, but usually it's onesies, twosies, or really just onesies. So how does a grouse interact with his, you know, family and friends on a, on any given day? Well, again, it, you know, it, it depends on the grouse, of course. There are, there are some grouse that in fact are, uh, do cubby up and, the uh, prairie grouse are notable among that, as, as are the, the uh, ptarmigan, uh, which are the either the high altitude grouse or the ones that are fa- found in the in the in the far north uh, above the tree line, or in the scrubby uh, willow zones. Uh, but and of course the red grouse is a big cubby cubby bird too as well uh, at times. And um, but the other ones they they as you say they are. Uh, relatively sedentary. When you find them in groups, it's usually the family group at the beginning of the fall before they have broken up. But they pretty much 
go off on their own and spend time uh, either uh, solitary or um, in loose uh, groups. I mean, loose one or two individuals associating, but but often, but most of the time you don't find them um, uh, together. And and the reason is probably a um, an anti predator defense mechanism because uh, one bird can be a lot more stealthy and than having two or three moving around because they're in a dense habitat and when a predator sees them like a goshawk they're very close to them and in fact uh, Gordon Gullion believed that if there's a if there is a goshawk nest in an area that that goshawk will kill essentially all all the grouse within a certain radius around the nest that they just won't escape it. And uh, I've seen how persistent these these goshawks are uh, after rough grouse when we had radio, uh, small radios on grouse following them around. I saw a grouse fly past me that I was trying to monitor and I realized that it was the marked bird and a, and a goshawk was after it. And I could never get that signal to, to localize because that bird was being chased by that grouse all day. And it was a pretty amazing observation. So uh, again, the reason why they, they stay solitary, I think, is probably to facilitate um, uh, avoidance of predation. Good, good hunting tip. If you see a hawk nest where you're hunting, just keep walking. <laughs> well, it depends on just bend on the on the hawk. You know, they they some other hawks will attempt to get them, but the only ones that are really successful are these goshawks. Those are the main avian predators. Although we have we have observations of of um, barred owls with nighttime infrared cameras at their logs trying to catch them, which is pretty interesting to see. I bet. I think it's interesting too when you talk about behavior because we do grouse do go through what we call the fall shuffle, and that's when those broods are starting to break up and starting to claim their own territories as well. But it doesn't happen the way that we used to think it does. And in this year specifically, in my covers that I've been hunting in the UP, I don't know if they did break up. We're still coming into coveys of birds or what we know to be young birds with maybe one mature bird as well and broods. So it's been really interesting to see typically what we see in a normal, you know, annual fall cycle where those birds are breaking up. A lot of people don't want to start working dogs when it's early on in the season when public land opens again um, here in August until that opener is September 15th in Michigan because the birds are so young and they're still, you know, in, in their broods essentially. Um, but we really haven't seen a full breakup in some different covers that I've, I've noticed this year. Um, so that's been interesting. And it's not just coveys of just adult birds coming back together. There's still some immature, potentially late hatched birds that are still together. So again, you know, I, I think things really vary when it comes to behavior and, and how they're claiming their territories and how they, they definitely stake out their own territories and start to break up. I don't know a hundred percent what definitely would cause that or, or what other, underlying factors, um, you know, would, would create that other than additional pressure, potentially the season opening up. I don't know if additional hunting pressure might create um, broods to stick more closely together and not seek out own territories because in the end, at the end of the day, 
any wildlife species goal is to survive and reproduce <laughs> and hopefully see that reproduction as successful and, and move on to the next year of its life cycle too. So it's been really fascinating to see how things have changed a little bit year to year here. So Heather, let me ask you this question. Um, do you, do you know if they got, they hatched out later this year? So that, the, that so that the, the cycle, I mean, the, the, this particular year just happened to be a little bit later so sometimes birds will, will nest later because of whatever conditions there are out, out on the field. And then it's just a normal breakup, but they're just uh, delayed by some period of time. Absolutely. And here we really see a variation between the northern lower peninsula and the upper peninsula. And even the upper peninsula is split between the east and west zones, too, where Weather is key. Food availability might be key. I mean, we, we're under snow right now in, in the central upper peninsula. We've been hunting with snow, and I think winter's here to stay now, much like Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, so, yeah, in, in a lot of parts of the state, we did see a late hatch um, due to several reasons, too. Um, but, the, you know, there's there's certain covers that you come across that definitely do have younger birds that just stay together, that didn't break up in that fall shuffle and claim their own territories, too. And they may just retain, it just stay as a covey you know, for the, for the rest of winter and potentially snow roost together too, or closely together. Um, but I can't speak to the entire state as, as having a late hatch. It's quite anecdotal here in Michigan, especially this year. Um, you know, it, there, it, there's been a quite long spell um, of, of time where we haven't conducted drumming surveys and brood surveys. So a lot of the information that we get is very anecdotal and really just um, consists of field reports from Folks in the up and hunting community that want to know what's going on with the local population and how things are doing. Mm -hmm. So let me ask a question that's been burning in my head for this entire season. I have had episodes about all the different species of grouse. And one, I've never really gotten a good answer to why can't, why are grouse so resistant to being raised like a chicken? considering they're relatively similar in biology. You can raise, you can farm raise pheasants, but apparently you can't see, you can't farm raise grouse. Actually, the, the, the very first comprehensive study uh, that was done on rough grouse that I mentioned earlier in the, in the, in the program was now a book came out on it called the, the rough grouse by Gardner Bump. Um, and, one of the objects was to see whether or not they actually could raise these things, these these birds in captive conditions, and it turns out you can, but it's very difficult, and it has to do with the diet primarily, and their natural tendency to to, to be quite skittish and they injure themselves uh, frequently. They don't tame down very easily, but but diet is one of the big major issues. And secondarily, there are some disease issues as well. Interesting. So they're super nervous and trying to figure out what they want to eat is has been probably your biggest problem if you're a farmer. Right. Because, you know, they, they normally don't don't uh, take to grains. Although sometimes they rough grass will eat grains in certain situations. But but normally they don't eat those things. They eat um, rough food like these. You you mentioned the, the catkins of of. Um, uh, hazels, uh, that's, that's a, that's a secondary food, but aspen is a primary food like that. They eat a lot of berries, um, uh, buds, um, they'll eat some leaves and so forth. So they're, they're almost like, um, 
in a sense, almost like a deer, except that they forage more on on the on the tip, very tips of these plants, like like buds and catkins and and so forth. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hankshaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. So, Heather, and then Rocky, tell me about why you got interested in ruffed grouse. That's a great question, and sometimes a difficult one to ask. So I cut my teeth in um, my my interest and passion in upland hunting as an adult onset hunter, actually. Um, so hunting and my passion for upland bird hunting definitely developed due to the fact that I was going into wildlife biology and ecology. Um, my family hunted, but didn't necessarily involve me um, in that at that time. But I had a lot of other things going on and I was, you know, showing in rodeos and I, I had a lot of other passions um, at the time. But I started out waterfowl hunting. That was my first introduction into game birds and then really started working towards game bird ecology and management um, as as waterfowl as my gateway and just became enveloped in this passion. You know, I had lived out west and pursued grouse out west and then came back to Michigan and it just hit me just spending time out in the woods and having the opportunity to work with a dog. It changed the way that I looked at my surroundings. And that definitely drove my passion for ruffed grouse long before I had the ability to work solely on ruffed grouse ecology and management and American woodcock ecology and management, too. And um, over the past few years, it really has just developed into my ethos. It it wasn't a job. It didn't start out as a job, but uh, it definitely didn't remain one either. It it just became a part of who I am and and my soul and my culture, not a a job where it's a nine-to-five you know, of course, I was very fortunate to talk about nothing but rough grouse and rough grouse management on public lands and talk with other hunters just as passionate as I am. Um, it, it just is a part of who I am now and just became ingrained. So I wish I had a great answer. It, it just fell into a part of my life when I was very passionate about bird hunting in general and thought that I was going to be duck obsessed <laughs> for so long. And then grouse hunting hit me and I, you know, I, this is my first actually I have a young setter right now who's now three and still figuring the world of grouse out. And he's It's really kind of hard to be duck obsessed in Michigan though. Like I've got a buddy who lives near Lansing and it's like, he is a duck obsessed, but it's, I mean, come on, you know, it's Michigan. I mean, um, we, yeah, have, I mean, we're a flyway on all the, all sides of the great lakes too. So you, you really can't beat it in some respects, but man, it doesn't last that long because it's a migratory state. Exactly. There's nothing that really beats the Northwoods up here. So that's what brought me even up to the UP. I've lived in the UP now almost a year and a half, and I tell everyone I'm going to die here. I'm living in God's country when it comes to grouse hunting, and it's it's just absolutely phenomenal. So it's a way of life for me now and one that I'm so fortunate to have found, but it didn't start out that way. But I'm so glad that I ended up where I did now, and I can't wait to share that with other people that I come across down the road. All right, Upert, you got to answer me this question before you get to Rocky. <laughs> Okay. How do you not shoot a a uh, uh, a fool hen when you're up in the UP hunting? 
like because you can't you can't shoot this the uh, spruce grouse but they're there so what's your trick for not getting a ticket well for me it's easy i mean as a game bird biologist too i can identify them almost immediately on the wing or if they're still like budding in a tree and in different covers, I mean, I, I read the cover and I know if I'm in a spruce grouse bog and we're maybe pushing a few rough grouse into an area that we may come into spruces just to be aware. You know, I, I try to identify just like duck hunting. You have to identify a bird on the wing before you really pull the trigger. And that really that is maturity as a bird hunter, knowing the game that you're pursuing and knowing how to identify and differentiate different species is maturity as a bird hunter, no matter what your age is. But learning that identification and that skill is key and you can lose it too if you don't stay on top of it so um, i would encourage anyone to just stay on top of their their bird id on the wing um or if they're still roosting which yeah i've, I've never had a problem with it and they're so much larger here of course than, than a rough grouse they behave differently they're darker color they've, they've got a beautiful gold band on their tail fan too it's it's pretty easy for me to identify them and luckily you know i've been in situations where i've been able to call that out to other folks and actually hunted them on the North Shore of Minnesota with a few of my uh, my fellow lady biologists. And we you had them, you had them with Bailey? Bailey and Meadow, yes. Yep. <laughs> Bailey Peterson and Meadow Kalfeld. Shout out to those ladies. Yeah, we, we had an amazing hunt out there, and, man, they're tricky. <laughs> they can be, or, or they can be like you have to stop shooting them because it's just you just feel bad about yourself. <laughs> we were in great covers, too, and we had some great biological data behind the areas that we were hunting and just couldn't find a ton of birds on the wing. We had seven or eight dogs in tow and just had an amazing time and they're they're a difficult bird to hunt the terrain's difficult too but um yeah so i mean that in a nutshell just know what you're shooting at know what you're pursuing know what cover your habitat you're in and you'll you'll figure it out from there so rocky you grew up in new mexico so that is not really a rough grass hot spot so did you first encounter them when you were up in humboldt or uh no uh actually where I encountered them was in New York State. So uh, before I get started on my little rendition of your question there, I I just have to say I'm sitting there on Skype watching um, Heather, and I'm I'm sitting there looking around trying to find my shotgun because she wants to make me go out hunting, man. (laughs) (laughs) I got all excited. So I'm I'm, I'm just hugely proud and, and happy that, she's working on behalf of rough grouse and wildlife biology. So that's great, Heather. Anyway, to get back to your question, um, I was, my first uh, professional position, I was on the faculty at Cornell University in the Department of Natural Resources there. And of course, the, the, first, um, the, the first semester I was there, uh, we were getting ready for um, uh, grouse season. And my, my mother didn't believe that I'd actually uh, was an actual professor. So she, she came to visit me from New Mexico and I, I took her on a tour of the Cornell campus and, and, uh, I was driving her back to my sister's who lives in the Hudson Valley and we're driving through the fog and out of the fog comes this rough grouse. It's the window. So it was an enigmatic, um, introduction, uh, to, um, to the rough grouse and I picked up this bird and it was nice and plump and of course I ate it later and it was so good I said I have got to hunt these things so it turned out that there there was a a fellow in in my department uh his name by the name of Ron and Ron um said um 
took took me hunting, and I had my bird dog that I talked to you about before that uh, exceptional mountain quail dog, Toshio. And um, Ron says, "Let me give you some advice, Rocky." He said, "You shoot where you think you're going to they're going to be, and you don't count the shells." And I I don't know I probably shot ten or twelve times and I didn't touch a feather, and because they were up and gone through these, and I was waiting, you know, like like what I had been for quail for a, for a nice point. And my dog did point some of them, but when they flushed, they were in just in, you know, in this dense habitat. And I could not bring myself to accept Ron's advice that I just had to swing through and watch, watch that bird going through the thing and just hope that when I pulled the trigger, that it was going to be in an open spot and in a, in a pellet was going to get through it and get it. And so I just, I pretty much muffed it. And uh, I, after that, I got, I, I kept it, I left Cornell and uh, came out to Humboldt and I kept in my mind this thing about rough grouse as being sort of very interesting. Um, and so I, 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 I forgot about it, but I started some uh, work on genetics of grouse, of all grouse of the world. And, and uh, I had the opportunity, my wife and I, one summer to drive and hunt grouse from northwest California to north of the Arctic Circle. And we spent a month and a half doing nothing but shooting grouse all the way up there, collecting specimens, of course, for scientific purposes. Oh, yeah, that's the only reason you did it. (laughs) Right. And the next year we went to Europe and I spent a a month in Finland hunting hazel grouse, which which looks very similar to a rough grouse. Um, and and then um, capricaylee and and black grouse and and on then to the UK to to hunt uh, red grouse and uh, I I I realized from doing that hunting that grouse are very different depending on where you are in their range and they act very differently and they use different kinds of microhabitats and broad scale habitats. So I had a, 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 a quite a strong interest in grouse in general. And then uh, the University of Minnesota uh, had a an endowed chair available uh, called the Gordon Gullion Endowed Chair, which I mentioned at the beginning of the program. And they called me up and asked me if I would apply for it. And I, I wasn't really interested in leaving Humboldt because I kind of like where I live here. Um, and so I went, I, I said, okay, I'll go and interview and see what they have to say. And it, it was one of these things that it was, they give you an offer, like the Godfather said, we gave him an offer that he couldn't refuse. So I, I went back to Minnesota and one of my objectives in doing that is I'm going to get back at these grouse. I'm going to learn a lot about them and I'm going to actually learn how to hunt them so I can get them uh, occasionally. And so that's my story of how I got involved in grouse. And I had uh, two Ph.D. students and one master's student, uh, Meadow Cofield, who uh, Heather mentioned earlier. She was my graduate student that worked on um, rough grouse uh, under my direction. And so we we did a whole 10 year cycles worth and we're still working on that data. Um, and we hope to get it wrapped up sometime in the next year or so. But I guess I guess. If I could encapsulate this, Heather sort of was born to be a grouser, a rough grouser, and had that immediate passion. And I had to get my 
nose bloodied a few times and start, you know, piquing that scientific interest in me to say, what is it about this thing that could, you know, make me feel so tiny after a hunting trip, you know, and uh, but feel tiny in a very good sense that, you know, here is here's a bird that is just unlike almost all other birds in the world. And to to give you a side example of this, well, I have a very good colleague who is the department head at nature uh, conservation in in um, at Shawnee University in Pretoria, South Africa. And he wanted to come and work with me for his sabbatical leave. Um, and he came. And so I said, fine. So he lived at our house for a year. His name is Brian Riley. And Brian is um, he's he's one of the, the greatest wing shots I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this guy, he actually shoots skeet virtually every other day. And uh, he is fantastic. And 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 it's hunted many green bears around the world. And so he says, he says, he says, I've really got to hunt. I've really got to hunt rough grass. I says, no problem. I says, we'll, we'll go out. Well, it happened to be a, a low cycle year. And even though I had a reasonably decent bird dog uh, and we we found some point, they are they can be a huge challenge. And after four, the first four or five days of, of hunting, he finally got a grouse on the wing. And he's he came back that evening and he says, you know, he says, I have never been challenged by a by a, a bird like the rough grouse has. And for for Brian Riley to say something like that, that was a big statement because he's hunted all over the world game birds. And he's he, he's just, he's a absolutely fabulous shot. You know, I mean, I see him, you know, break 300 straight clays, you know, without blinking an eye. You know, he's he's that good. And he just said, man, those things are something else. He says, I feel more proud of this grouse than any other bird I've ever shot. Weird. I totally don't have that 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 experience at all. And I've hunted all of the Great Lakes. Like, I like hunting grouse. I find them challenging. I find uh, any number of birds harder to hit than, than grouse. Um, I think one advantage that I have decided to p- give myself is I shoot a very short barreled over and under and I shoot bismuth sixes and bismuth sixes will go through anything. So I don't care if it's a tree stump, it's going to kill that grouse and grouse die super easy. So like, they're not like ducks, you know, you get them on the ground and you get that flutter flutter and then you just walk to where you can hear them. I mean, maybe I've just been lucky, but I've never been skunked grouse hunting. And I've <laughs> grouse hunted 20, 30, 40 times. That's saying and, a lot. Well, I made up for you. <laughs> yeah. And <That's> me. <laughs> so I, what I think is, you know, part of it. OK, I'm going to I'm going to admit that many of those times were either in Canada or in the West. So there you're getting the, you know, the not widely grouse, but. The, the Great Lakes, since both of you guys have cut your eye teeth and grouse in the Great Lakes, I would have to say that I have never hunted Maine, so Maine could be an exception. But in my opinion, if you want to hunt grouse as sort of the platonic ideal of grouse, you go to the Great Lakes because they're numerous. They're, they're going to give you enough chances where you should get a couple. Um, and they're, they're actually an exciting bird to hunt as opposed to, you know, like I mentioned before in the, in Utah where they just look at you because yeah, I mean, you talk to your, my, you know, people in 
the Mountain West states and about the glories of grouse hunting like we're doing, and they look at you cross-eyed. They're like, "This, what are we talking about the same bird? And we're not. <laughs> I mean, biologically, they are the same, but the, just the hunting experience is just very, very different as you go from east to west. One question I've had um, is the... The, the various phases, the red, the charcoal, and then the, the various other color phases, is that just like just sort of it just happens, or is there any rhyme or reason to it? There is a hypothesis that the, the color phase is, is re- related to um, either temperature or uh, an adaptive response to predation, so that if you look at the distribution, the, the two main phases are gray and red, uh, although there's different sorts of phases that people have identified. And, and we've done some uh, spectrophotometry work on, on these, and we haven't published that. We're working on it. It turns out that there's really only red and gray. And all these other different phases are like subsets of the gray and not the red. So... If you start in Alaska, virtually all the all the grouse in Alaska are gray. And as you go further south, the proportion or the percentage of red birds or reddish red faced birds increases till you get all the way down to the southeast and they're all red. So that distribution between starting from gray and then going into into red is thought to be either temperature-related or related to the coloration of the vegetation, particularly snow in the north and the, and the humid, moisture, darker conditions in, in the south. One thing that's been interesting that I've noted, too, within the rough grouse range, and again, really speaking more to the Great Lakes in south and then over to the east coast, um, is that, you know, some people and, and some grouse hunters refer to them more as an Appalachian um, subspecies. And we tend to see, and this is, in my own mind, not 100% scientifically proven. And again, Rocky, I can't wait to hear about that um, additional work that you guys are, are conducting right now with regards to this, too. We tend to see more northern latitudes see more gray phase grouse. And then southerly latitudes there seems to kind of be a dividing line where those that red phase is a lot more common than we have up in the in the northern latitudes too if you will so you know there's been some work um that Steve Bax with Ohio Division of Wildlife has done as well where historically he's kind of splits the state of Indiana um into two sects and two two sections and regions where even in northern Indiana and southern Indiana when grouse were historically with their range existed throughout the state, there was still kind of a dividing line there between, you know, that potential subspecies, whether or not it was scientifically a, a subspecies is not for me to speak to. So, you know, it, it, I think it depends on who you talk to. And I hear a lot of that too, with um, a lot of our hunters. And I mean, a, a here in Michigan, a red phase grouse for me is, is not common. Um, not as common, of course, as, as some of the gray phase too. So it's really a treat to come across in the woods and, and really wonderful to hear about, uh, just varying areas and regions where you might come across too. Yeah, we shot uh, mostly gray ones in Alberta, but I think we got one or two red ones. And we were in the mm-hmm. boreal forest north of uh, Edmonton. Right. Yeah. yeah, they're not super brilliant there too, by the way. So. <laughs> I had someone. <laughs> we we came into a, a cave. A guy went. I 
got inducted to be a brood um, a few days ago, and a friend of mine had referred to them as acting like Canada birds. And I've never pursued grouse in Canada yet, but I laughed. <laughs> oh, I mean, we did the episode with Bailey and and my friend Kevin Casawan, who's from Edmonton, about spruce grouse, right? And Kevin, life, you know, he's he's a little younger than I am, but he's in his 40s, and he, until he met me, had never hunted grouse with anything other than a 22. And, you know, you can't even imagine hunting grouse with a 22 in, in the Great Lakes because <laughs> you're just not going to get your opportunity. I mean, you might get it once in a while when they're sitting on the road picking up grit. But, yeah, he's like, well, no, I never, it never occurred to him to shoot grouse with a shotgun until he met me. And that's, just, you know, now he's cleaning up. <laughs> <laughs> you give him a trick of the trade now. Is there something about rough grouse biologically? Like, is do they do something weird and different that say other species of grouse don't do everything is weird and different (laughs) rocky do you want to take this one first (laughs) yeah you know that's 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 a tough one um because you know i could say well you know this dependency on on aspen through most of their range uh could be one except that you know they in other parts of the range they they don't have even have aspen and blue grouse like aspen yeah this is why they're the king. You know, this is questions. This is why we consider them the king, I think, pondering these types of questions that we that are tough to answer. That in well, itself is <laughs> Let me let me switch gears then. Do you see a Bergman's rule effect uh from like Alaskan birds versus Appalachian birds? In other words, you know, big giant ones up in Alaska and smaller ones in in the southern part of the range? Well, I mean, you would predict that the birds in Alaska would be larger. I actually haven't seen uh, data on that. I mean, it's it's. I'm I'm sure I'm certain it's available. I just don't recall uh, noticing it. But um, there there is a general uh, biogeographic rule um, that would predict that animals in the north of the same species are going to be larger than they are in the south because of the surface the volume ratio of the animal. So. That means that there's there's a smaller surface area from which to lose heat in the north, and that's why they're that's why they're larger. So if you look at say um, white-tailed deer in Alberta, you know it's it's not really that unusual to see a 300-pound Alberta whitetail, and then you then they go all the way down to these little teeny things in Key West, Florida that look like antelope jackrabbits. Uh, (laughs) They do. Pretty small. Um, And so that's, that's a pretty good example. That's an extreme example of, of this biogeographic rule uh, about body size and the surface to volume ratio. Um, So, yeah. So, you know, you'd you'd predict that the grouse in, in, in Alaska would be bigger than than they would be in say Alabama. It's true. Like with Bob White's. Bob whites in Maine are bigger than Bob whites in Florida. Yeah, but there aren't very many Bob whites in Maine, are there? There used to be in southern uh, Maine and New York hmm. and, um, you know, Massachusetts. Uh, side note, it's called the northern Bob white. Is there a southern Bob white? No, uh, they they call it northern uh, to coalesce all the subspecies of Bob whites that are different from the bobwhites that are true species 
that are found in Mexico and Central America and South America. Ah, okay. So, dogs or no dogs? And then if you're if you're a committed dog person, because I I mostly hunt grouse without a dog. That seems to be like an apostasy to many many grouse hunters. Um, and my best grouse hunting has always been with uh, a really little black lab, a flushing a flushing bird or a flushing dog. So I have kind of a different experience from sort of the classic grouse hunter, which is running a pointing dog and you know you shoot birds over a point. But I'd like to hear. Your guys' thoughts on if you're a dogless hunter and you're hunting grouse, what are some tips to be more successful? A dogless hunter? Correct. Walk very slowly. Mm-hmm. Get into the right habitat and walk very slowly. Walk um, five or six or seven yards. Stop. Look around. Walk a few steps. Stop. Look around. And then just keep doing that. Because one of the things that uh, will, ha- will often happen. Of course, they're, they're just hiding there and they get nervous. And so when they hear this stopping and going, they're not sure of whether you're homing in on them and they lose their nerve, some of them, and flush. And so that's where you get them. But some of those things have nerves of steel. And uh, I'll tell you that share this little story. Uh, my wife loves to go out um, hunting. She doesn't hunt, but she likes to, to, to watch the dog and and uh, go, you know, go mucking around, crashing through the brush and whatnot. And uh, she wound up getting this little Lhasa Apsa, this little um, Tibetan dog. And it, it's, a, it's a great little dog. It thinks it's a bird dog because it watches the, the short hair point and do all this stuff. And it wants the point, but it can't really do anything because it's so small. It can't really get through the brush. So she would walk on a trail uh, with me and we'd go hunting some area and she'd she'd be walking maybe 50 60 yards behind us and she would tell me how many grouse she flushed that were up in a tree or up above where the dog couldn't smell them uh, as we passed through because these things after after they get pressured and hunted quite a bit they get really cagey and they pull out their their tricks you know one of the tricks is jump when they hear the dog coming they jump up into the tree where the scent is and the dog gets birdie, but the bird's not there. Well, it's up in a tree somewhere hiding. So if you walk very slowly and stop, those birds that are hiding hear you and jump up in the tree or stay on the ground, they, you know, they finally lose their nerve. So that's what I would recommend for a, for a dogless hunter. That's exactly how I hunt. <laughs> and, you, and, and you know why I learned how to do that? is because I first started hunting. I also started Heather as an adult. And the first hunting that I started doing was squirrels and rabbits. And if you hunt cottontails without a dog, that's just precisely how you hunt cottontails without a dog. You you walk without rhythm. Like it's like you're, you're trying not to get eaten by a sandworm in Dune. And <laughs> this, this stutter step, stop, rest, walk, walk. Don't walk in a straight line. And then the rabbit will freak it it'll lose its shit and then it'll, it'll run and then you know it's <laughs> then you have a rabbit so i just naturally started doing that in the grouse woods in minnesota when i first started hunting them and well okay full disclosure i am not above shooting a grouse out of a tree so this is also ex- helping to explain to you guys why i don't usually get skunks shooting grouse is because hey it's in the tree sorry dude uh you, you taste you too need good to put a little sensor on that 
because there are people <laughs> listening to this that will just have a conniption. <laughs> oh, good for them because you know what they they have they have leather patches on their elbows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I noticed that sometimes they'll fly into a tree and you can just blast them out of the tree that way. Um, or you know, if you're lucky to catch them on the on the flush, you get them that way. The other thing that I noticed, and I bet you guys will will have the same same reaction. The most common grouse shot for me is it's a pirouette shot behind me. Like, so I'm walking and then they bust pretty close to you on the left or the right, but kind of right behind you going away. And so there's this pivot shoot that you you get good at if you hunt a lot, especially without a dog and especially if you're solo because you, then you don't Dick Cheney somebody. And, uh, but it's just, <laughs> it's this you know, wheel and shoot kind of because they're busting away from you. And it's just, this is that nerves of steel thing where, they waited, 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 and now you're past them, and they 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 get the heck out of dodge. Have you guys had that too? Oh yeah, I think most of my shots are definitely passing shots. But I think for me, so it's the passing shot to the left or the right because that may be where the escape route is. So another you know word of advice if someone's hunting without a dog, and I I definitely prefer to hunt over dogs, and that just creates its own romanticism. And now I hunt more for the dog and that experience than sometimes even the bird, you know, just being out with the dogs means the world to me. And that's, that's where my passion lies. And the birds are of course an added, a huge added bonus, but you have to look for those escape routes too. So that's what will catch you with, with an escape route behind you or a passing shot to the left or the right. Try to find those. When you, if you're walking into a cover, you know, to anyone who, you know, isn't a seasoned grouse hunter and even, those of us who are, sometimes I still just watch them <laughs> knowing, you know, maybe sometimes I don't even shoulder my gun when I could have had probably the easiest shot I might see on a bird and the best luck I might have on a bird all season. Um, those, those escape routes are key. So reading habitat and trying to just know your surroundings and trying to figure out if you were that bird where you might flush towards an opening or towards thicker cover is definitely, you know, where they're going to uh, have a tendency to fly when you do flush them either, you know, from a dog on point or a flushing dog or walking in and flushing the bird yourself is, is the way to do it. But yeah, the pivot shot, um, behind me, I don't always pull that one off because I'm usually with one other person. Um, if it's myself, not a problem, but I, you have to be aware of who's around you. Of course. <laughs> it works well if there's just two of you, because then you know that you got one, I got the pivot on the right and somebody else has got the pivot on the left. And then, so that, that, that way you don't shoot each other, which is, which is a bonus. Yeah. And a bonus. All right, let's just not get into species because that just gets ugly. <laughs> um, design for me, what does a perfect rough grouse hunting dog do? You know, not, not, not necessarily in terms of the species, but what are the attributes in any, any breed of dog that make it a, a very, very good rough grouse dog? Oh, this is a fun question. Rocky, or do you want me to? Well, I, I did went first last time. You go ahead. Shooting from the hip here. Oh, that's a great one. So first of all, that dog's your best friend. For me, that dog is my confidant. Um, our dogs are family dogs as well, too. So first and foremost, being socialized and being a dog that I can take anywhere, any place and time on the road with me in any scenario is, is amazing and, and key for me. So that dog's my wingman, 100%, starting off. I have a young Llewellyn setter right now who is still putting the pieces together. And a lot of people, if they followed me, my 
through my trials and tribulations on, you know, social media and throughout other podcasts, I've talked about this a lot too. It's been a test in patience. And it's, it's still amazing to see a young dog just figure the world out, but especially figure the grouse world out. This dog will point anything, but rough grouse have been his challenge. So for me, a dog that's willing to learn and very biddable, that has a great prey drive, but also wants to hunt with me. So me and my dog have an amazing relationship, and we have two other Britneys, my better half and I as well. And they're all just amazing dogs and have their own personalities in themselves. And, of course, they live to hunt, but they also just love to be our best friends as well. Um, but at the end of the day, that amazing grouse dog is one that I'm still building, so I can't really answer it. You know, I'm, I'm still working on training that amazing grouse dog right now to see what he's going to be. So right now, what I love seeing is him just putting those pieces together and learning and being just as excited as I am when we hunt a different cover and we have different bird contacts and he's pointing a bird and not going in and flushing it and nose to the ground, you know, kicking birds up. So the journey, you know, just enjoying the journey with the dog is, is my biggest passion. So I probably didn't really answer your question, but that's what, what's in it for me. A hundred percent is the journey with the dog. And down the road, I think my answer will probably change when I've had numerous other grouse dogs and I know exactly what I want in a breeding and I know exactly what characteristics I'm expecting as I'm training and, and kind of filtering my way through it too. But yeah, right now it's, it's the journey and hoping that the dog's enjoying it just as much as I am. And their passion for the grouse woods is just as strong as mine. Is it a key characteristic? <laughs> you know, um, in, in thinking about these characteristics that, uh, Heather was talking about, it, it sort of reminded me back of our conversation previously about the mountain quail and, and, and that extraordinary luck that I had with my first dog, who was my, 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 my buddy, you know, my, uh, main companion for, for many years. Um, and I've noticed this with other good bird dogs and, and people who had good bird dogs and especially for, for mountain quail and especially for, for rough grouse, a, the main characteristic of a dog or one of the main characteristics of a good grouse dog or a good mountain quail dog is it has to recognize that it is part of a team. Many dogs hunt for themselves. They, you know, they'll they'll do as they're they'll obey commands and they'll come to the whistle finally or whatever. Um, and with a bob white or open country birds, you can compensate uh, to a degree with a dog that's not really hunting as part of a dedicated team or that recognizes he's part of a team. And You'll know that. You'll know when a dog is hunting for you versus whether it's hunting for itself. If you when you get some experience, and so that's that's a key characteristic. Another characteristic that I think is important for for grouse dogs, and I think why people favor English setters so much uh, as classic grouse dogs, is is the dog has to have. I mean, most dogs have good noses. I mean, if it's a bird dog. Virtually all dogs have good noses because that's what they're bred to do. Uh, but they don't also have the the, the temperament um, to use that nose and to have the restraint to not bump birds. 
these these grout the mountain quail and and these uh, these grouse are prone to 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 flush or to do devious things to get to get rid of you and when they smell that bird they need to really slow down and be very cautious and work that bird and and stay uh, far enough away from it that they don't they don't uh, bump that bird so i think a, a patient dog uh, with a good nose uh, that's hunting as part of a, uh, a team that recognizes part of a team um, is an ideal grouse dog. It's funny. I was, I was uh, listening to both of you and listening to, you know, cause I've hunted behind dozens and dozens of, of grouse dogs. And my favorite experiences have been with this little, it was a little Finn It was Finn the dog. It was uh, my friend, Chris Niskanen's uh, little black lab. And she was a close working flushing dog. So that close working flushing dog gives you that. Well, first of all, she was definitely part of the team. Um, second of all, she kept she, she didn't range super far away. So by the time she got birdie, you knew that there was a bird like there. And so they very rarely flushed wild on us because she didn't work. She didn't range very far. Whereas I've worked with some English pointers. Um, that a were absolutely hunting for, the, for themselves, and b I I don't know where in the forest they were, <laughs> they were just they were somewhere, and it was it was not exactly the uh, super successful uh, because in my experience a big huge ranging pointing dog like a like those pointers now I mean people are going to be listening to this and be like I've killed billions of grouse with my English pointer, but in my experience it, those dogs have been really good in for like chuckers or or uh hungarian partridges or prairie grouse because they're big ranging and i can't even imagine because i mean grouse they walk away they're not they're not going to hold point for you super well at least in my experience they're usually when i'm with a pointing dog if it's if it has ranged far enough where you can't see it where it's gone on point by the time you get to it that bird has moved off some ways and now of course you can re- reacquire them but that doesn't always work. Yeah, that's those are good points. And Rocky, it's funny because the two things that you mentioned are, you know, solid qualities that we look for in our grouse dogs are two of my ailments that I've been dealing with with my young dog as he earns his salt in the grouse woods, too. And I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when it comes to, to species, I mean, we, we have a young Brittany male that I, we swear that grouse are just stringing him along you know, on a, on a string when grouse are on the move and, and happen to kind of break away and don't hold as well. And I've seen, I've hunted over a huge variety of, of different dog species, different dog breeds, shouldn't say species. Um, I think everyone has their own great characteristic and, you know, it, it still has an amazing benefit to our hunters that are pursuing those birds too. So it's all about what your your style is and how you might move through the woods too and what your pace and your gait might be as you, you know, follow your dog through as well. So yeah, it's a fun conversation and one that tends to go down a rabbit hole very quickly. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just as a non dog owner, I mean, it's just, I just, I sit back and just eat popcorn while I see these people like go out each other's throats. To the death. <laughs> my dog's better than yours to the death. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Just like with the birds, I mean, even with dogs and training dogs and trying to figure out where where your place is in the dog training world and working with them. Humility is key and everyone's learning from each other and learning from our dogs and 
our experiences too. So that's life, right? Totally. So once you have a bunch of graphs in your bag, uh, what do you guys like to do with them when you get home? I was hoping you were going to talk about cooking at some point in time. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you that question. <laughs> uh, so for us, we, we're we really kind of diversifying our grouse palette and woodcock palette right now, too. But um, we, we have like a palette grill smoker now that we really like to. Um, we haven't smoked whole birds yet. So we'll, um, you know, still try to utilize, of course, as much of the bird as we can. But we've been... Testing our luck with that and um, grouse nuggets with a very certain breading have become a favorite of ours. And, of course, you can utilize the bird in a number of ways, too, and really capitalize on the amazing flavor. They're not gamey, and I would prefer it over chicken any day. Um, so, you know, we, we use it in any sense that you would in, uh, with poultry, too. But there's a woodcock popper that my better half, Eric, makes that is just <laughs> phenomenal that it doesn't overpower the flavor of the bird that he has just honed in that we grill. And everyone who says that they're not a fan of eating woodcock, I know this is about grouse, but woodcock really need to shine some light here. I think too, they're just kind of a delicacy in their own too. And we've um, just really enjoyed sharing that with folks that normally might not eat them or feed them to their dogs or don't even harvest them when they're still, you know, here. And I miss them when they're gone, but that's a particular Michigan prejudice. Um, is it? Yeah, I, I find that, that upland hunters in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Canada and, and the Northeast do not have that problem with woodcock the way the Michiganders do. Okay. And it's I've seen it we love many them. times, many <laughs> times that Michiganders are like, I'll be like, yes, I got three woodcocks, we, woo, doing the happy dance. And I got like one grouse. And they're like, oh, it's a terrible day in the woods. I'm like, oh, save a hunt in a heartbeat, and they're so delicious. Do you so, primarily skin them or pluck them? Well, I should have talked to you about this before, and there's a <laughs> well, a story that I'll tell you down the road here um, after I'm sure this episode airs. But we, I have a hard time plucking them. Their skin is so paper thin. Eric and I have tried it several times too, and we find that either the dog might handle them, and when they're bringing us the bird, pierce through that skin, or the shot might go through. So it's so hard to have a perfect bird that has a perfect shot that you can harvest and have. The ability to pluck it where the skin is still intact. So we typically do skin them and we've utilized legs and wings and breasts. Um, but I've yet to actually have like a perfect whole body woodcock that we can utilize. That's, that'd be ideal. <laughs> Just so this have, is you know, one, one other advantage of being a dogless hunter. Uh, <laughs> whenever I'm hunting with somebody who has a dog, I will try to get to the bird before the dog can. Always. <laughs> and it pisses the dog off to no end, but sorry. Of course. Because yeah, I mean, most dog dogs, it. that's the thing. I know most dogs are, are most dogs that I've hunted have pretty good mouths, but even then you're right. Grouse skin is thin. Yeah. The, the, I, I always, you know, I've, I've only had one dog that's had a hard mouth, uh, but even then I let the dog have the birds because that was their reward for all the hard work they were doing. Um, but I can give you a recipe. Sure. What I do. It's pretty simple. Uh, it, well, it's simple, but one of the ingredients is maybe a little hard to get. Um, what what I do is uh, fillet the meat off of the grouse, both the the legs and the breast, and then I lightly sauté them in olive oil, and I serve them on a bed of a pasta with with squid ink, 
And uh, that's one variation. And if you don't have pasta with a squid ink, you can um, make a Mornay sauce and lay them on top of that. And they are so succulent and, and uh, sweet. They're just wonderful. And I have another recipe for for, for uh, rough grass, I mean for woodcock. And that is you uh, put the woodcock, well, you, you get a bottle of whiskey and, and you get the woodcock and uh, a um, half a gallon of turpentine. And oh, here boil, we go. You boil the woodcock in the turpentine. And oh. then you mix the whiskey with the turpentine and throw the woodcock away and drink the, the rest it's of the It's like stuff. the old coot joke, Rocky, and, where you boil the coot with the brick and then you eat the brick. It's totally <laughs> that. <laughs> All right, you Philistines. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so number one, cool. woodcock oh. are super easy to pluck. Um, I don't believe Woodcock you. Are, are way easier to pluck than anything other than a, um, a columbid. So the doves and the pigeons are, the, are by far the easiest to pick, to pick. I mean, that's why your dogs don't like to pick up doves or pigeons is because their feathers are falling off. So woodcock are only slightly more difficult than that. Grouse do present a challenge, but is no bigger or less challenge than any other of the gallinaceous birds. So the problem with plucking and i've said this a zillion times if you're a regular listener to this podcast you'll this you're i'm doing the speech again the problem with people plucking upland birds especially gallinaceous birds is that they pluck them at precisely the wrong time you either want to do it when you come home that night or you want to do it the night before or the, the morning after which is precisely the worst time to to pick really any bird but especially an upland bird you need to get your birds, if they're smaller than a turkey, so this is like blue grouse on down, which includes the rough grouse, just it's fine in your pack because it's usually cool out, and if it's not, just your pack is usually still okay. Don't stack them. Line them up in the back of your truck or whatever. Obviously, you don't want them to freeze-freeze, but you want to cool them down. And then you're back home at the shack or your house or wherever, Get them in the fridge. Put them in the fridge. Leave them in the fridge. Hold them in the feathers. Don't mess with them for three days. And so day one is the hunt. Day two, you forgot about them. The third day or the fourth day or the fifth day, it'll all, it's all good as long as they're in the refrigerator. And they will pick a hundred times easier. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say that they will pluck then like a, like a dove or a pigeon. But they will pluck infinitely more easily. There's a few detail tricks. I, I'll, I'll post it in the show notes of the some of the detail stuff. But the short version is this. You will know by pulling the feathers out of the wings. And they will come right out of the wings. All those flight feathers, the big long feathers, they'll come, they'll go bop, 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 bop. And you'll get them really super easy. The next thing you do is you work the, the foofy feet. And I always uh, pick the from the, the knee, you know, I don't know if it's actually a knee, but it looks like a knee, um, which is foofy in a grouse. Foofy is a technical term. And, and, then you, and then you pick down on the legs. The places where you're going to rip them are, are primarily three. One is the coverts, you know, the, the shoulders, right okay. where the, the wing. I mean, you guys know, but I'm re- talking to the listeners, too. Uh, so the, the shoulders uh, that typically is an area where you can get high ribbage. So you just slow down and make sure that you're not picking loose skin. So I often will have my off hand 
anchoring the skin while I'm picking with the other. So the second area where the feathers tend to come off really easy, uh, I'm sorry, the second area where people rip the skin are those those guard feathers on either side of the breast. So you know, like on all of the gallinaceous birds, on the edge of the breast are these long kind of display feathers that make the bird look like the bird. And in the center of the breast, they're much smaller and, and thinner feathers. Those come off super easy. There's, there'll be no problem with that. The ones that are going to get you are on the, on the right hand, on the outside of the breast. It's also where there's a big line of fat. And so on those, you really do sometimes have to go feather by feather by feather, but it doesn't mean you have to go slow. I mean, it does when you start, but when you get the hang of it, you can go pop, 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 and you just get them all, but you're going one or two feathers at a shot down one side and down the other. Now, the last place where you get big rippage is the those same big fancy feathers that are on the thighs. So the legs pluck, the drumsticks pluck super easy. But once you get you into, the, into the thighs, you get these, you know, they're kind of long guard feathers. I don't know what the technical term is, but they're, they're, you know, they're they're long and they can rip. So you always pick them with the head of the bird facing you and you're picking away from yourself. You're picking those long thigh feathers away towards where the feet are. And again, sometimes you have to go one at a time, but you can go bup, 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 and you'll get them all and you won't rip anything. It'll be great. Um, you can leave the tail on or off because most people don't eat the Pope's nose, um, the tail. And you can if you want uh, because it's a good source of fat, but most of the upland birds that we hunt are not fat. The chachalaca is the notable exception, and, and they're a very different kind of bird. Um, but, yeah, if you wait two to three to four days after you shot that bird and you've kept it cold so it doesn't, doesn't go bad, the difference is so profound that the reason I think that grouse are the king of all birds is because a whole plucked grouse is arguably a deathbed meal because the the character of that bird from the skin and the fat is so radically different from a skin bird that it's not even the same animal. It's funky, it's woodsy, it's it's beguiling is, is for lack of a better term. It is so different from a skinned bird that it's 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 one of the things that has gotten me to drive 1500 miles to the great lakes area just to hunt grouse for, to eat them let, let me ask you a question so when you put these things in the fridge are they gutted or not gutted they're whole whole okay. and in the feathers because it's way harder to pluck yeah. a uh it's much harder to pluck a gutted bird than any than an ungutted bird okay so you're dry aging three to five days. And how long does it typically take you, if you've got an aged bird, say three days, how long does it typically take you to pluck one? I mean, you're seasoned at it. but About 10 minutes. Okay. It'll take you three times as long. 20, I'm in trouble. I should be reconsidering what I'm doing. I no, love- no. I mean, it's it's better to have it take a long time because let's face it, unless you're, I mean, I know a couple guys in Wisconsin who shoot five grouse every time they go out. But that's rare. Um, let's face it. Typical grouse day, you shoot one, two, three. You know, occasionally you'll get more than three. But you're not talking about a huge. It's not like you know you and your you know you and your significant other just shot 14 ducks between the two of you, which is Holly and I do that all the time. And that's a project. <laughs> three grouse is not that hard. 
I really enjoy your romantic depiction of the flavor and the robust memory that you get from that bird too. And that's something that I, I definitely need to take more time and I guess putting, putting into the preparation of that bird too, to really do it justice. But I mean, to just additionally create that memory and really enjoy that bird in a way that I haven't enjoyed it before. And I love your take on that. It's, it's really enlightening. There's no way I don't think it's going to take me 10 minutes. I feel like as an unseasoned plucker, it's probably going to take me about a half hour per bird, which I think is where I get my impatience from where in, in game preparation, I, I should just let it take longer and make sure I'm doing it when I've got the time to put into it. But hashtag give a pluck. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. It's going to take you a half an hour to 45 minutes. The first, the first few, few times you do it. I mean, That's looking for, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I will not lie to you. Uh, the payoff is profound. Another fun thing that you can do with rough grouse, because as you guys both know, being biologists, rough grouse live fast and die hard. It's a rare grouse that's three or four years old, right? Yep. So typically you're shooting young of the year and you can check if it's young of the year by the covert feathers. And if you get a young of the year, by the way, if you're listening out there, if you look at the shoulder feathers, little shoulder feathers, if they are, if the color doesn't go all the way down to the edge, so there's kind of like a buffy tip or a, a light colored tip to those those shoulder feathers, the coverts. Um, that's a young of the year bird. Am I right? Another one is the, the outer two primary feathers. So if they're ragged and or if they're pointed, then um, they're uh, young of the year, and if they're rounded, they're adults. So there you go. So there's another good tip on aging your bird. I say this because if you get a young bird and you pluck it, you can deep fry the whole thing and it's crazy good it's crazy good because that skin crisps up like a kentucky fried chicken and it's crazy good it's like it's going to make you want to like buy all kinds of ammunition <laughs> rocky's giving me the We're thumbs down <laughs> eventually we all need to get together and, and hank i think we definitely need to prepare rocky, rocky some woodcock <laughs> i would love to hear more Huge juvenile you. joke here <laughs> I, Hank, I think this should spur another offshoot. I know you do this all the time, too, and you've done it recently with other grouse and woodcock recipes, but I think you should do some off-the-cuff recipes that aren't normally in your your books or in your podcast that are kind of off-the-cuff that we wouldn't normally think about doing. Like, yeah, I, I would not think to deep fry a whole bird, especially, you know, especially a grouse or a woodcock, because I want to try and savor all that flavor, but... I'll take your word for it, and I would I would absolutely try the preparation on any of those ones. Yeah, I mean that that's those are some of the things. Another one that blows people's minds is if you shoot a lot of rough grouse, uh, take the I mean is, again I'm picking the birds because you know I'm even when I was living in Minnesota, uh, I would only get I don't think I think the limit is three there, um, but I don't think I've ever gotten more than three in a day in Minnesota. So you know even when I'm shooting a bunch of them. What I end up doing is I, I will save my plucked wings, the, mostly the drumettes on a rough grouse, but the, the drumettes and the flats of pheasants. And you, you basically save them all up for Super Bowl. And the morning of Super Bowl, you put them in a, you know, a Dutch oven or a pot and cover them with water. And you basically think about making chicken broth with all of the wings, except you're not going to take it past the point to which the meat wants to fall off the bone. So you really are actually are making a pretty good 
grouse or pheasant broth for whatever for whatever it is. And you can use that for risotto or soup or whatever it is that you want to use it. But what you're left with are tender grouse and pheasant wings that you then toss in your the, whatever sauce makes you happy, whether it's buffalo wing sauce or barbecue or whatever, whatever. And then you since they've already been cooked, you can't really fry them like you do in the bar. But you stick them on a uh, – you've coated them in the sauce, and you stick them on a cooling rack that is set over a baking sheet, and you roast that at 450 degrees until it's crispy, which will take about 20 minutes. And then you have grouse, pheasant. By the way, this works with turkey wings, and it's the single greatest thing – it's the single greatest part of the turkey, by the way. This is going to blow people's heads. Like braised turkey, grouse, pheasant wing until it's tender, right? coated with your favorite sauce and then roast it at high heat till it gets caramelized. Then when you eat it, you go and suck that meat off the bone. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is slap your mom in the face. Good. <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. All right. I'm going to start saving every, <laughs> every wing and drum at from every bird now. And the, the giblets, uh, the, the heart gizzard and liver of, of all of these upland birds I, I collect them either for I can eat sometimes I throw them in the ground meat pile like if I shoot a bunch of spoonies uh, I'll throw them into the ground meat pile. Uh, the other thing I tend to do is uh, is Cajun dirty rice, uh, which if you're not a giblet eater, is the single greatest introduction to giblets um, because it's completely inoffensive. There's nobody who won't like it. It's basically Cajun fried rice, and it's called dirty because you cut the liver up so finely. That it's it's it just basically makes the rice look dirty. It's not like you're not eating chunks of liver because I don't know about you guys, but I don't love liver. Um, it's okay, but I have a textural thing with it. Yeah, lots of people do. I mean, I I don't eat liver simply because it's a it's a, a tox detox detoxification organ. And so I don't, I don't you shoot know. a lot of alcoholic grouse yeah there's a lot of stuff in that in that it's who knows but no i know i know lots of people that do that so you know um one one thing i might mention there there's actually a for people who are interested in a coffee book there's a pretty nice coffee table book called a, a passion for grouse that's published by the wild river press now, don't go to Amazon because it's not on Amazon. And there is another book called Passion for Grouse that is on Amazon. But it, it's at Wild River Press, which is a small uh, press in outside of Seattle. And it's got a bunch of recipes in there, but it's got uh, chapters on biology, on hunting, on bird dogs, on uh, grouse guns. And, and this. oh, there it is right there. <laughs> yeah, they're showing it. <laughs> yeah. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Okay. Well, thank and you guys. This, we've been going for almost uh, well an hour and forty minutes. This looks like. Yeah, and I was just going to say we probably ought to break it up because I have to I have to walk in the dark to my house and I had a bear bluff charge me uh, a few days ago and uh, it makes me nervous to walk down in the dark. Well, that is a great way to end this episode. So uh, I will. I already know how people can get in touch with you, Rocky, and I will put that into the show notes. Uh, before we go, Heather, um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? 
So if they'd like to uh, just find me on social media right now, I think that's the best um, form of contact and we can go from there. And if you find yourself in the UP and want to hit the grouse in Woodcock Woods uh, later this season or next year, find me um, on Instagram. I'm Heather Shaw zero zero and Facebook Heather Shaw. It's just a picture of me and my Llewellyn setter chip. So if you search that in rough grouse, I should pop up from someone, you know. All right. Good deal. Well, be safe. Uh, dodge the bears. And yeah. uh, I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you okay, so thanks a lot, Hank. Well, that is our show this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and quick shout out to Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring this show. You can follow me always on social media. I am on Instagram as Hunt Gather Cook. I run a Facebook page called Hunt Gather Cook, and if you answer the questions and say that you listen to the podcast, I will let you in. And as always, the core of what I do is my website, which is honest-food.net. It is hunter, angler, gardener, cook. You can also find it at huntgathercook.com. It is the home of literally thousands of wild food recipes, not just upland game, but also big game, other small game, ducks, fish, wild plants, edible mushrooms, and all of that kind of stuff. One quick request, if you have liked this podcast, season one or season two, I ask that you consider making a contribution. I keep this podcast as minimalist as possible in terms of sponsorships and advertisements because I would like to keep the listening experience as clean as I possibly can. So think about this as a little bit like public radio in the sense that if you have a few dollars to chip in to help keep the lights on and editing and transcript and all of that kind of jazz I would really, 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 really appreciate it. So you can contribute through the link on my website. You go to the podcast page, and it says make a contribution. And you can do anything from $6, which is gets you a bumper sticker, all the way up to 35 bucks, which gets you a signed book, to 75 bucks, which gets you two signed books. And you can go on from there. So once again, I really, really appreciate anything that you can contribute to help keep this podcast going. Thanks a lot. Again, I am Hank Shaw, your host, and I hope you have a good week, and I will talk to you next week. Until then, shoot straight, eat well, and be safe out there.